0: Well, good morning, folks. Today I'm with you via video because I am out of town today and looking forward to joining you next week. Today we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. As you know, we've been doing a close reading of of Mark's Gospel. We find ourselves now right in the middle of the 11th chapter. Uh, And and I want to remind you what we've been trying to do is an artistic reading of of Mark, a, a literary reading, I call it. In which we try to take the artistic intent of the uh, of the author into consideration and in trying to understand what Mark is telling us about who Jesus is uh, uh, through the way he constructs his story. That's particularly important today, uh, as 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 you'll see. So let's dive right into it. Today we encounter this this uh, story that's quite familiar to us uh, about the fig tree and the temple. Um, I want to to ask us to begin our our inquiry into this gospel by asking the question, why did Mark tell these stories, which appear in Mark in, in, excuse me, in the Gospel of Matthew also, but in a different way. Why did Mark tell these stories in the particular way um, that he did? I can tell you as a a heads up that this is one of those uh, sections of the gospel in which Mark is rather famous for his art form as we'll get into when we talk about how he dealt with the fig, But first, let's dig into the context. I want to remind you of the context of our story. And as this picture depicts the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 in the Common Era, um, the, the uh, audience to whom Mark was writing his gospel uh, was awaiting destruction of, of Jerusalem. They were Jewish Christians uh, facing persecution in Rome, and Jewish Christians facing um, an imminent uh, descent of the Roman army on Palestine and the, the almost certain destruction of the temple, which in, did in fact happen. So that's the context. So Mark is writing to this, and I think you're going to find that's going to be very important to our our understanding today. Let's talk, though, first of all, about the temple. If you know, the, one of the questions that I want to suggest to you would have been on the hearts, minds. Of, of all Jews uh, uh, and Jewish Christians, uh, or certainly Jews, um, at, at that time, and I think Mark would have been addressing as a pastor, is, well, what do we do if the temple falls? I mean, you need to think about this. Like, what will we do if the White House and, the, and, our, and our Capitol building, if it were ever attacked? Oh, wait a minute. It was attacked. <laughs> How would we feel? Uh, and uh, you throw in the World Trade Towers and you get, you know, you get something that, that captures the uh, what the, the temple would have been uh, to the Jewish people. So if the temple falls, uh, how would we survive? That they, The people of Mark's time wouldn't have been the first to ask that question because the temple had fallen before. Um, the temple was the heart of Israel's religious life, certainly, but it wasn't only the heart. It was... Um, also, the economic center of Jerusalem. It was the political center of Jerusalem. It's where governance happened. The the high priests were, you know, served uh, on behalf of Rome uh, in Jesus' time as the political leader of the people, and uh, it uh, had enormous economic um, uh, importance because uh, it was a massive center of the city. Uh, that was the source of employment for the majority of the people, and it was the marketplace. And this wasn't just true of Jerusalem. This was you know, throughout ancient times. This, the temples uh, were the economic hearts; they were the banking centers of of ancient times. But but the temple for for Jews was were not just these things. Um, the temple was the symbol of Israel's national identity. Identity. Um, The patriotic as well as religious symbolism of the temple was thus enormous. And uh, the temple was magnificent, as we will see. Uh, Herod had rebuilt, Herod the Great had rebuilt the temple, and uh, he had built it in such a way that the, the architecture matched the symbolic significance of the temple for the people of Israel. So let's give you a little bit of background. As I said, this wasn't the first time the Jews had asked this question. What will we do if the temple falls? The first temple, as you know, was the one that uh, King Solomon built. If you recall, uh, the Jews demanded a king. And so they got King Saul, and then they got King David. And then David's son, Solomon, built the temple that David always dreamed uh, of. And here's a little uh, reconstruction of of it. Uh, it, it took uh, some time to build it. Um, uh, the, the temple uh, was built about 480 years after the Exodus uh, migrations ended, and we know that it was destroyed in 587 of, of uh, before the common era by the Babylonians uh, who carted off the folks and rather famously carted off the wealthy to captivity, to exile in Babylon, where they stayed, for about seventy years, now uh, at one of the things that's rather famous, if you read the the book of Daniel, which is actually written uh, in a different era, but it but the but the story is is of this uh, carting off of the of the leadership of the Jews to um, Babylon to captivity in Babylon and uh and, and they ask the question, then we know because the prophet Ezekiel records it, what you know, how can we possibly survive? The temple was the place where God dwells with us. If we're not in the temple, if we don't have the temple, how will we meet with God? How will we be with God? How will God care for us? How will we uh, become at one with God uh, when we fail God, when we break the covenant? how will we atone for our sins, in other words? Uh, the temple was essential to our relationship with God and so when the temple was destroyed it was it was an incredible uh, existential threat to the people and the and the prophet Ezekiel who was a priest rather famously uh, helped the Jews to see that that kind of thinking was uh, misinformed and so uh, Ezekiel's wheels as you you see here, um, uh, and, and you know are described in the first few chapters of Ezekiel, and what they show is is uh, as the wheels uh, head off to Babylon, carting off the uh, the uh, the captives. Uh, God's spirit, God's presence was going with the people, so that God's people would, you know, God's presence wasn't stuck somewhere in the ruins of Jerusalem and the, you know where the temple had been but rather God would be with them in Babylon. Uh, what a beautiful um, teaching that Ezekiel came up with. And so uh, this, this was a very much, very much an ex- existential question, but not a new one for the Jews. And they already had a, an understanding that God was not limited to that physical physical space. Well, the temple was rebuilt around 516. It was completed and it was dedicated. And so we have what we call the second temple that was built and uh and that temple uh, the story the book of nehemiah and the book of ezra to record its construction we don't need to get into that the important point was that uh that that not not it didn't last that long before it too was defiled uh by the greeks the greek the greek empire rose in the in the 300s and over time uh the seleucids and the Ptolomites, uh uh divided the kingdom of, of the greek empire and uh, and they profaned the temple rather famously, um, because what we uh, we know from from various sources is in the year that you know the background of the of the book of Daniel is in fact the the profaning of the Jewish temple, which occurred uh, right about uh, 200 years in the common era. Excuse me, before the common era, uh, before Jesus' life. Uh, and and it was it was an effort to abolish the Jewish re- religion. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, I've shared with you, uh, defiled it uh, with uh, uh, with the worship and, uh, and an altar uh, of Zeus, and required uh, that, uh, that, that that the, the Jews, uh, you know, worship Zeus and and, and offer their uh, their ties uh, for the for the for the temple of Zeus. Um, and so it was. It was defiled, but rather famously, in the year 164, um, the temple was uh, was rededicated and and cleaned, purified, as the prophets had, had predicted would happen by the Maccabeans, the Maccabean brothers. Uh, famous story there. This painting depicts the the uh, the massacre of, of the Maccabeans uh, you know, at, you know, by the Greeks uh but but uh what, what but th- that happened uh but it, it they they managed to be in revolt for about seven year period in the middle of it they uh redeemed the temple cleansed it and purified it and in uh, that and that feast of dedication is where we get our feast today that we call, we know as hanukkah and it remembers how uh the maccabeans cleansed the temple they had the victory and so we commemorate that annually in the Feast of Dedication in December. Uh, but that led to uh, a new dynasty, the Hasmonean dynasty, and that then led to the, the empire of Herod the Great. Herod the Great rebuilt that temple, and what an incredible thing it was. Herod's temple uh, began to be rebuilt about the year 20 before the common era, about, you know, about 16 years before we think Jesus was born. And what's interesting is that Jesus... Uh, excuse me, Herod's temple was not completed. The construction wasn't completed until 65 in the Common Era, so it took it took uh, 85 years to complete. And you can see why by looking at the comparison. Uh, it's comparison to Solomon's temple. Uh, it was a massive facility, um, and uh, that's what that's the uh, one that was the center of worship for the Jews during Jesus's time. Um, and of course, that's the one that the Romans uh, came to destroy. So now let's talk about another uh, symbol in this story, and that is the fig tree. The fig tree for the Jews was an emblem of peace and prosperity. It was an, it was symbolic of of hope, hope for the future, uh, and that, that hope was famously expressed uh, in Micah. You'll look if you look at Micah four four or Zechariah three ten. You may remember George Washington and his his farewell address, you know, uh, quoting those uh, that that hope for a future of peace and prosperity, where one could sit under one's vine and one's fig tree and gather fruit from them. Uh, well, in Jesus's time, the fig tree would have been widely understood as a symbol, as a symbol of the fruit that Israel was to produce within its common life, and that and that and that fruit would be present. And they would be producing that fruit. When the Messiah came, that was fundamental, and so that would have been understood, uh, by you know, very commonly by the folks as Jesus encounters this fig tree. One other piece of background I just want to note for you uh, an interesting thing about you know Jesus' section on prayer today. A little bit of background for us here to recognize uh, that again, Mark is doing something interesting here, and the question I want to ask is why did Mark connect Jesus' teaching on prayer? to these accounts, the story of the fig tree, the story of Jesus' visit and cleansing of the temple. Matthew and Luke presented those same teachings about Jesus, very similar teachings you know, by Jesus about prayer, uh, but they did it very differently. Uh, in, in, in fact, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see simply the presentation within, in chapter six within the, within the Sermon on the Mount of the Lord's Prayer. And similarly, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, we see the Sermon on the Plain, both of which are simply a recitation of, of the Lord's Prayer, where, where the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray, and he does. But Mark does this differently. Jesus' teaching on prayer is the result of Jesus' visit to the temple. Why is that? I think those are important questions as we consider the meaning of this this very interesting story about Jesus's cleansing of the temple. So, let's uh, get to that. Now, I, I uh, want to point out one thing. There's a very uh, literarily a famous uh, piece of work here that Mark does an artistic uh, rendering, in that he takes this story of the fig tree, and unlike the Gospel of Matthew, where it appears just as Jesus looked at the you know, saw the, saw the fig tree, uh, and he. Uh, noted its absence of fruit and then he cursed it and it withered. It's all one thing. Mark splits those two parts, those two apart. He we see at the very beginning Jesus uh, uh, naming and judging the fig tree and 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 doing what we would call a curse of the fig tree. Um, and then as after the disciples, uh, leave the temple and go back to Bethany on the way that, you know, the next morning, you know, on, they see uh, that the fig tree has in fact withered all the way to the vine. So why did um, Mark do that? Well, this is uh, rather famously what's known as a, um, a well, it's a, it's a very common way of, of, of doing what we call a sandwich. And the way it works is that the, the uh, uh, literarily, you have the you know uh, two two texts uh, and something in the center, and the in the something in the center helps us to understand the meaning of the of the of the layers on the outside, and the layers on the outside help us understand the significance of the meat in the middle, and that's the literary device that Mark is, is presenting here. Um, so, what about these figs? Well, the point the background I wanted to give you is that at Pal- at Passover time in Palestine the leaves are already opening, but they're not yet thick. The, there, there will be a, a first, an early fig harvest that happens in May or June after Passover. And so it wasn't, when Jesus was here, it would not have been uh, time uh, for figs. So why then did Jesus hope to find fruit on a fig tree in leaf at that time? Well, uh, what we know is that there are uh, early figs that do arrive um and uh, those are they're the often often as the, they're often offered as the first fruits of the harvest but uh maybe maybe Jesus was hoping to see those especially if the tree has as mark emphasized a particularly well developed show of leaves which might have encouraged one to hope well if there's that show of leaves uh, a massive show of leaves well then perhaps it has developed further than the others and uh, it's more advanced than than normal at that time of the year, and one would expect fruit. But these were not even those undeveloped figs. Uh, a tree in full leaf at Passover season is making a promise it cannot fulfill. And and the point that I think we see in this in the story with with uh, with Mark is that so too is Israel making a promise it cannot fulfill in the great show about the temple, uh, just as Micah. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, speaking for God, described his own disappointed search for the first ripe fruit um, for which he hungered. So Jesus, when he initially visited the temple, found all leaves but no fruit. And so his summary verdict on uh, that, that uh, braggart fig tree, as one scholar put it, is a verdict on the failure of God's people. So let's talk now about the uh, judgment uh, that Jesus renders. Jesus uh, goes into the temple, and as you see, he enters the temple, and, it, and as, as our text tells us, he threw out those who were selling and buying uh, items there, and then he very famously pushed over the tables that were being used for uh, Currency exchange. The you know people pilgrims came from afar and they brought the currency that they may, that you know that they were used to in their own areas, uh, but it had to be exchanged because at the temple they only accepted the Tyrrhenian, you know the the, the, the currency of Tyre, T Y R E I, excuse me, T Y R E. Uh, they only expect accepted that currency, so you had to exchange your currency in order to buy things. And one of the things you would buy were the articles that were necessary uh, to. Uh, offer in sacrifice and one of those would have been the doves so Jesus it says overturned the chairs of those who sold doves why doves well doves were the were the uh, were the offerings the sacrificial offerings that were made by the poorest of the poor a, a, a woman coming to the temple uh, to be purified after having been unclean uh, because of the fact of her pregnancy of her, of her delivery of a baby uh, you know, would pay for a dove, would give her money for a dove and offer it in sacrifice so that she could be rendered clean. Uh, quite a racket going there. Uh, and, 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 uh, and so this was what Jesus stopped, uh, when he, when he went through there and he explained to us why, he, why he, 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 with these words, he said, hasn't it been written? My house will be called a house of prayer. For all the nations, this was uh, what the temple was for. After all, was it was the life of Israel, the common life of Israel, was to be such that it drew uh, its holiness, drew all the world into fellowship with God and with each other, uh, and and so all the all the nations would stream. Isaiah, in chapter two, we see all the all the the nations would stream to the to the mount, uh, and. Uh, and worship God together as one, um, undoing what had been done at the Tower of Babel, reuniting us uh, once again, the thing that we see at Pentecost later. Uh, um, and, and Jesus says, that's what was supposed to happen, but what has happened, well, those who've been entrusted to bring about that house of prayer for all the nations, that the, particularly the temple state, uh, that was that governed Israel uh, were guilty. They had turned it into a hideout for crooks. Now, I want to suggest to you that the hideout for crooks does not refer to the people who were money exchangers there, selling doves. Jesus is, con- is condemning the temple priests who, as we've seen earlier, Jesus has condemned uh, for creating an economy that consolidated the land of the many that was each person's share of the promised land into the hands of the few whose power increased, whose wealth increased, who, who ran the temple state as an oligarchy and as, as the poorest of, of Israel uh, found themselves thrown off their land and living the life of either day laborers uh, hoping for a handout or beggars uh, at, at, the, at the gates of Jericho, like Bartimaeus uh, hoping for a handout or uh, becoming brigands that go off into the caves and live in the caves and in, 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 in hope for liberation by attacking the convoys of the Romans. Uh, that was the, the type of sour fruit that those in charge had had produced. And so Jesus is condemning, when he talks about a, a hideout for crooks, this is who he's talking about. And so, what is that judgment? Well, we see what we've I've described. You know, the next morning, Jesus and disciples were walking along, and they saw that tree withered from the root up. That fig tree standing symbolically for the temple state itself. Jesus prophesying that 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 God in naming God's judgment upon the temple state, and and prophesying that it would uh, wither up, wither from the root up. And of course, later he will, in chapter 13, uh, say that something like that once again. And of course, that's exactly what happened to the people. Uh, that's what the people were waiting to see happen, actually, to whom Mark wrote in 70, in the common era, the t- temple was in fact destroyed, just as Jesus predicted. So, what does this mean? I want to suggest to you that there's good news here and that good news is that God sees the good that we do and, and blesses that and sees the evil we do and finds some way to turn us and it to the, the, uh, to the good so that God is always leading us to the good that, that, that God desires for us. There's a saying that I, I learned at Duke that I love um, that uh, some of you may know. And that is this, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. God is always leading us to still waters, those still waters our restless hearts desire. Sometimes God does that uh, with acts that we can't imagine could ever happen. Uh, those miracles like the Sea of Reeds that swallowed up, Pharaoh's army. Sometimes God does that by turning leaders' hearts as as God did when King Cyrus of Persia let those exiled Jews go and and, and himself funded the rebuilding of of their temple in Jerusalem, giving us the second temple. Sometimes God does that uh, by sending someone who will be for us in in our lives, those living hands and feet of of Christ, those angels who help us to to heal our broken hearts, to heal our broken bodies, uh, our broken dreams. And and sometimes God delivers us by judging our institutions, those institutions that no longer serve the good that they were intended to serve. God names their impotency for the good and withdraws God's presence from them by allowing them to wither, like the prophet Isaiah said, like the grass. Uh, It's important to say, God didn't cause the Roman army to destroy Herod's temple in the city of Jerusalem. No, 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 no. We humans did that on our own. Through our human sinfulness towards each other, that happened. But God names truthfully the demonic character of those institutions that we create uh, for the purpose of manifesting the good, and like in the temple, it was to be a light of all the nations, but, but which, due to the free will of men, no longer uh, become sources of liberation, and no longer sources of peace, but become sources of oppression and greed. Well, God condemns, God names those things as evil, and God rejects it. And that's what happened to the temple. The temple fell. But not before... And this is the important point. God had cleared a different path in the wilderness to those still waters that our hearts desire. A different way, a different way of being together, a different way of being Israel. No longer temple-centric, no longer connected to the temple. Like Ezekiel's wheels going with, where God went with, with God's people into exile in Babylon. You know, God was not dependent upon the presence of the temple. Jesus created a new temple, a new way of being, a new way of our being and sharing fellowship with God, of receiving ongoing nourishment and life from God. And so I say to you that judgment is salvation. We shouldn't be afraid of judgment. Judgment is one of the means by which God delivers us by naming our sin and rejecting that part of of us that is ugly and life-threatening and driving us to do the same so that we are indeed transformed by the renewing of our hearts and minds. Folks, our institutions, the ones that we create, betray us. That's a fact of life. Those appointed to leadership over us, whether in government, uh, at work, or, or in the home, betray us. That's that's, that's a tragic, that's an empirical experience that arises from the tragic reality of the human condition that causes us to be anxious and to take things into our own hands at the expense of others. And so we sin against God and we sin against each other. That's our human condition and that's why our institutions betray us. That's why we betray each other in our work, in our family relationships. Perhaps that's a situation you've experienced recently. Perhaps that's something you're experiencing now. Perhaps it's a story of your past. Perhaps it was an institution. Perhaps it's at your work. Perhaps it's a father who is betraying you, a spouse, a parent. Those things do happen. But the good news is that God enters into those spaces that we create and delivers them from us by judging our institutions, as we see here in this story, and judging us, and then rectifying us, making things right, often, as in the temple situation, by allowing the destruction of that which we thought we could never live without. Institutions, like the temple, like the organization that we thought we'd be a part of the rest of our life, like the the spouse that we thought we would be with who would bless us the rest of our lives. Judgment is salvation, for God saves us from ourselves by judging us in our institutions, allowing them to fail. I think that's the lesson from this story today, but God never does that without preparing first a path forward to the good that God desires. Never before preparing the new beginning for which our hearts groan, that new beginning that enables us to carry on the story of our fellowship with God and each other. So, God delivers us, God saves us, and one of the ways He does that is by judging us. So, let's talk about that new beginning. How do we find the path through the wilderness? that God is already prepared for us. Well, Jesus answers this, and I think this is the answer to the question I raised earlier. Why does Jesus connect prayer to the story of the destruction of the temple? I think it's because of the, the fact that judgment uh, is painful. Judgment puts us in a place that we're, in which we feel isolated. It stresses our relationships with each other and, and with God and And so, how do we get our new beginning? Well, we get our new beginning? Jesus tells us that that God has after the temple fell, created this new space of fellowship through Jesus, prayer, a prayer life through jesus and he says he says to us uh that the way that we get our new beginning, the way we find that path in the wilderness uh it happens through two essential things: first um trust, trust that uh Um, that that basically I I, I like to to paraphrase Jesus' statement that says, be still and know that I am God. Or as Jesus puts it here in my paraphrase, trust that what's impossible for human beings is not impossible for God. Don't believe that Jesus or God uh, can, can never deliver you from your current situation. And the second is, when you are ready and when you are praying, Make sure that you begin that prayer with a posture of forgiveness. These are the two essentials. Trust in God. Be still and know that I am God. Trust that what's possible for, impossible for you is not impossible for God. Believe in it. Believe it and trust in God and follow along that way in spite of your, your anxiety. Secondly, whenever you pray, begin with a posture in which we ask for God's forgiveness because that's the posture of humility. That's the posture that recognizes God for who God is. And so what's the good news today? Well, I think Mark seems to be saying to Jewish Christians as they waited for the Roman legions to descend on them, as they were buffeted by the waves of Jewish calls to arms to protect the temple and all that represented, you know, take up your cross, as they worried about how they were to survive in a world without the temple as their meeting place with God, that God had already delivered a way forward through the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. That's the good news. And, And the second thing is like unto it. He also seemed to be saying that we ought not despair when betrayal happens, when destruction happens, no matter how painful it seems. It's part of human life because of the reality of sin, but God understands that and delivers us by judging those institutions that betray us and by creating all things new. All things are indeed being created new now, here and now. And finally, the third part of the good news that I see today is that we navigate our way to the new life that God prepares for us by prayer that is centered on forgiveness, embracing the forgiveness that God gives to us and and extending that forgiveness being a a means of, of that forgiveness to all with whom we encounter Uh, That's the way of love that God has called us to live. Uh, May we hear the word and uh, be blessed by it this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.